The day I got saved, I went to an Al-Anon meeting because I was dealing with a lot of confusion about my ex-husband and in my family. So I went to an Al-Anon meeting and I was when I was driving home and I was at the corner of Broadway and Main sitting in my car and I literally felt more hopeless than I'd ever felt in my life. I just was completely at the end of myself and I had my hands on the wheel and I was about to turn onto Broadway and <laughs> out of the blue, I said, Jesus, I'm ready to let you run my life. And I never thought those words. And to this day, I believe the Lord just short-circuited my mind <laughs> and put the words in my mouth. So that was the turning point. And the interesting thing that happened later is that I was like, oh, okay. Like, I didn't really think, went home, went on with my day. And then there was people that had been praying for me. And so I started phoning them because about 11 o'clock at night, I just sort of sat up and went, wait something happened. So I called my one friend who had been praying for me for 13 years, and she didn't pick up. They were really tired of me. I mean, I'm not even, like, I had tired them out a lot. And, um, and then I phoned another couple that were also praying for me, and they didn't pick up. And so then I phoned this third friend, and I told her what happened, and she said, Gaylene, you're a Christian. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and that was it. Like, I mean, it was that simple. They arranged to come over the next day and pray for me. And the, the first week of my, my salvation is one of the craziest weeks of my life. This is the Burning Rooms Podcast. Welcome to the Burning Rooms Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we connect you with the prayer movement in Canada and beyond, where we have the conversations, share the stories to strengthen your corporate and personal prayer life. My name is Johan. I'm Brian. I'm Jehu. And in that introduction, you heard our guest, but before we get to our guest and introduce her, before we get into it, we wanted to thank our new patrons for their support for our podcast. First, we have... In our Tears of Joy category, we have Anonymous. Thank you, Anonymous, for joining our Patreon. And we have two other patrons joining our So in Tears, which, by the way, if you sign up for that tier, you get your own theme song. That's right, your own theme song. So tune into the end of this episode after the Burning Rooms theme song, and you will get Jaden's theme song. Thank you, Jaden, for becoming a patron. And also thank you, some guy named Orv. Orv, thank you for becoming a a patron of the actually it's my dad. Parents are always the best supporters of of patrons Amen and podcasts. To that. So thanks, Dad. You didn't tell me who to make that theme song for yet. So yours will be on the way if you tell me who to make it for. So thank you, patrons, and we hope that we will get other listeners that want to support the podcast because we got to upgrade some equipment, keep the website going, and there's just costs that come with podcasting. So if you want to become a patron, there are benefits, and you can check all those out on our website at burningrooms.ca. Without further ado, I want to introduce our guest. You heard her in the introduction. Her name is Gaylene. Hello, Gaylene. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. It's so great to have you. We've talked about having you on for quite a while now, and it's good to finally get you in the room. Woo! 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 
So, Brian, why don't you introduce our guest today? Yeah, well, Gaylene came into the tar community at shop about the same time I did, actually. And I don't know, I, one of the things I love about the prayer movement is that God calls people from all sorts of backgrounds. And, and it can look so completely different from one person to the next. So if you've ever had a stereotype in your mind of what you think a, a typical house of prayer or prayer movement person looks like, like, chuck it out the window. Um, we've seen that over the years in our community where, where the Lord's just brought people with vastly different backgrounds, different stories, different gifts into our house. And Gaylene is certainly one of those people. She is a, she's a hood mom. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we get into it today. But she's carried the such a heart and such a passion for, for missions that goes just far beyond a job title. And so I'm just excited to dive into this conversation with her today. Yeah, so today we're just going to talk about Gaylene's story a little bit because it is so intriguing and such a powerful story. We're probably going to do a second episode and get into what what your role is and what you do in the prayer movement because that's also quite an amazing story. So, okay, your story, you started at the beginning. So how how long ago was that? How long have you been saved? 15 years. 15 years. Yeah, I was 44 at the time. So I'm I'm very an unusual, like a lot of people that get saved, get saved as young people. I was pursued, to, as the scripture says, till the end of the earth, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and I finally, you know, gave in at uh, age 44. That, that's awesome. So 15 years as a, as a follower of Christ. Yeah. But like your, your road from the beginning was a... Uh, I mean, as, as far back as I can remember, it has been a, a radical one, like just involved with refugees, involved with gangs, all sorts of stuff. Like how, how on earth do you make that jump from new believer to hood mom? And what even is a hood mom? Yeah. <laughs> In the past, I've been a journalist. I was a music industry executive and I was freelance writing right around the time that I, I, I became a Christian. And just looking, I just felt this emptiness and like, I, I can't even quantify it right now. I just was lost. Plus my marriage was disintegrating. So I was working at a center for refugees and it was like immediate. Like I was like, ah, oh, this is, it was called the Need Center for War Effective Families. And uh, immediately I just got a sense of purpose. Interesting, I had worked at the Canadian Food Grains Bank before as a, a writer and those people got me reading the Bible. I was I was going to AA at the time and I would show up at AA meetings with a Bible and I didn't have any idea the importance of it. Like the, I didn't know that I was carrying around Jesus, right? Like Jesus, the word made flesh and I'm walking into AA meetings with the Bible because I thought that the AA big book was really boring. So then I come to the Need Center and you know start working with refugees and there was quite a few Christians and interns there, and it's not a Christian agency at all. It's a, funded by the federal government and the provincial government. And so I was just immediately like kind of like, and I was at that point where I'm asking questions. My marriage is falling apart, and these people were like, you know, feeding me, right? Like it's really like the living word, like really is the bread of life. And I I was being fed, and, the, and it was right around that time that uh, I think I had been at the Need Center for— two months and I became a Christian. And then right around that time, they offered me to coordinate a program with uh, 11 Sudanese families and then to find mentors with 11 Canadian families. So I coordinated that program. And so I got like inserted into the, the Sudanese community. Believe me, 11 Sudanese families, it means nothing. That means you're basically 
you know, you're part of the community and I just started doing this work. And then the Canadian families came to me and, and then all of a sudden it's just sort of everything started colliding. Like I started kind of getting like purpose, Jesus, you know, how God had used me throughout the years. Like I would travel to a city and go to the ghetto. I would go to Treme in New Orleans. I would go to like Cabrini Green in Chicago because I wanted to be with the real people. I wanted to see what a city's really like. You know, you can see how God is preparing you. I go to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and we go to the gospel tent, you know, and the Lord was like working on my heart. He was like drawing me. I remember the best concert, like, like the best concert, I like top five of my life was Kirk Franklin at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, right when the Kirk Franklin and the family came out. And was this all before you were saved? Yeah, yeah. Like so, the Lord was like, I was like what is going on here? Like, it was so amazing. And it was like speaking to my heart. So all of this was like piling. Plus, I had friends that uh, were all going to the vineyard at the time, and uh, they were praying for me intensely. And then they moved over to King's Fellowship, and then all of King's Fellowship was praying for me. It was a lot of pressure, you know, like my life was falling apart and yet God was drawing me, you know, like showing up with a Bible and like just all, and it's, it seemed all so random at the time, but I see now how it all, and then he got me into a job where I found my purpose. Like it's not all of my purpose, but it was really, really potent at the time. And it just, everything started making sense. And then I was running a program for these families. And I think it was about six months in to working at the Needs Center. And I saw these kids that I knew that, and they were selling drugs in the corner of Kennedy and Coppell. And I really felt God wanted me to go and tell, tell them about Jesus. And like, and this is where I say I'm like the worst missionary of all time. Cause I, I was like just going up and telling them they're going to hell. Like, I mean, <laughs> how attractive, you know, like they all remember me though. <laughs> I'm in the psych ward the, a little while ago. And this guy's like, I know you, I remember you. Ministering in the psych ward. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, make that clear. <laughs> but it's 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 hilarious. Like even though I was so bad at it, the spirit was in it. Like you know, like people were threatening me. I had like threats. I remember this one kid whose brother is like my closest kid in my life. He drove by and he was threatening me, and I was like, you know, God loves you, and like you know. And I remember Al Gordon, my pastor at the time, he said, Gillian always invoke the name of Jesus. Like God is, yeah, God is great, but like Muslims believe in God, right? So always evoke the name of Jesus. Like when, you, have, you know, like he started building me up and like really in a real messy way because they could see that there was this call in my life. And after I ran the program for Sudanese families, I ran a program for at-risk refugee youth, which was extraordinarily messy. We had 45 youth <clears throat> from all across like Africa, Iraq, Afghanistan, Colombia. We had it all and they were all at risk. And uh, We've had a, a couple of them die. A couple of them are, you know, single parents now. And um, a lot of them, uh, several of them are in jail, definitely drug dealing. I mean, so <laughs> it just gave me all these hard cases and we had no plan B. Like, no plan B. It was like, we're going to get them, like, you know, turned around. Like, it, there was no saved, although I would think that that's the way we thought, right? And there, it just didn't work out well. A few of them went to jail, and, and uh, it, was, it was messy. Very, very, very messy and very rewarding. And a lot of those kids are still in my life. So you mentioned in your story how prayer was really pivotal for yes, bringing you into the yes, kingdom. Yes, Did that then become a real 
uh, important key of your walk with Jesus. Can you tell us a bit about how prayer has interacted in your life? Yeah, that's a really, actually, an excellent question. Um, I believe that that's at the foundation of everything. Someone prayed for me for 13 years. A whole church prayed for me for four years. Then I, I get saved. My ex-husband left the next day, and my primary my intercessory side was awakened immediately. <laughs> so I started praying for my husband to come back. <laughs> and uh, so that never happened. But I learned a lot about the Lord's heart. And uh, I learned a lot. Like, you know, I, I can't say that I've ever really liked to pray. It's not like my favorite thing or, you know, but it's just, a, it's necessary because God gave me all these hard cases of these kids and these families that were in like trauma and like uh, culture shock and in jail <laughs> and, you know, in trouble and struggling, you know, poverty, all these, these different situations. He gave me all these situations. And what are you going to do? You you very quickly realize that you cannot solve any of it. Like, I want them all fully saved. I want them all fully, you know, I mean, the things that I'm asking for are, you know, and then you start contending for, you know, a couple here and a couple there. And then I came into shop. And one thing I will say is that it taught me to like contend for the bigger picture for a revival. Like, you know, I, I just got tired of like only contending for my son and, you know, uh, and a few of these kids, like some of them have, and some of them have some backslidden and I, I just, that's when you just kind of go, well, I guess I'm a revivalist. It really was like that, like, okay. What would you say over the years are some of the biggest answers to prayers that you have seen? <sighs> well, the fact that I have been without a steady job for a good decade now, and my rent has been paid every single month which even now I'm like, I one of the reasons I went to Ash Wednesday today was to like fast worry because I'm like in a situation right now where like, you know, I've lost some supporters and and I need to get a job. and But I can every once in a while go to the mountaintop and go, oh my goodness, like all my rent and my bills have been paid like every month for like years and years now. Like, and it really is a legitimate call in my life as much as people you know, don't get it. Like the urban missionary, I think intercessory missionary and urban missionary are pretty on the same. I don't know if you hear the same really odd questions I get from Christians, you know. What kind of questions do you get? Uh, well, you know, like, who do you answer to? Uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you don't have a board of directors? No, exactly. You know, and, and when I wasn't on staff at Shop, I'm kind of surprised I even get it now. Like I actually had a woman the other day that was like, borderline hostile with me about it. And I had met her before I realized after, and she's asking me the same questions again. Like, she really does not buy it. Urban Missions is is kind of, and, you know, have you not read, like, Jackie Pullinger's book? Or, you know, there, there are definitely urban missionaries, and these are legitimate, well-respected urban missionaries. And uh, so am I. <laughs> Against all odds. <laughs> I think we'll hit some of the specifics of, of what you do as a missionary in the next episode. Right. So it seems like the Lord surrounded you with a bunch of Christians before you were saved. Uh, how did that happen? Well, it clearly was him. Um, it was my neighbors. 
And uh, like my actual pastor now was actually friends with them. So he actually participated in praying for me. <laughs> like that actually happened. And then they just saw my need for Jesus. I did not see my need for Jesus. I fought it for 13 years. I was in AA. I'm a reformed alcoholic. I thought the higher power thing was working for me really well. And it, it was just a sovereign thing. Like my friend, she was newly saved and she was like, I think she wanted to just kind of drag me into the, I mean, the Christian life is not easy. It's not easy. It's, it's really, really difficult. And she's a musician. And so she was faced with all her issues and stuff like that. And I really think she just wanted her neighbor to get saved just so I could go through it with her. You know, I mean, there were other reasons too. And like, I'm not insulting them at all. They will tell you they handled it really badly. They would argue with me and like till all hours of the night and stuff like that. It just doesn't work. And so there was a lot of modeling. I just was actually telling that someone the other day, like there's this guy from another church. He's made this someone a project. I was just like, dude, like let it go. Like I said, I got saved in my car alone after, you know, a bunch of people prayed for me for 13 years. I was their project, but I, but the way the Lord worked it out was that it was a sovereign thing that happened. Like there was all that prayer pressure and there was all that, that there was a lot of relationship involved with it, but it had to be the way it happened. And that's why I handle people the way I do. I know that it's good to like just plant a truth bomb and like walk off, <laughs> let it explode. You know, my kids, they'll tell you, especially around, uh, like single life and uh, not having sex before marriage with the word. Abstinence. Abstinence. Oh my goodness. Always say the same thing. Kayleen, you always say the same thing. You know, it's like, yeah. And so like, I've learned to now just say it once and then just pray for God to like water it instead of like saying it every week. And, you know, every time they call, you know, <laughs> you're in sin. No, I never said that. But I, you know, would just clearly explain that God wants you to walk in purity and sex is for after. After marriage and yeah, it, it gets a little repetitive. I just love how it wasn't it wasn't you saying the sinner's prayer or something. I did actually say the sinner's prayer three times, but it didn't take. It didn't That's take. the whole point. <laughs> well, it with was with Erica twice, <laughs> and I did. So, so saying it, the sinner's prayer does not make you saved. No. So well, I mean, in some cases, yes. Yes. But you know, it's, but it's not like that rote like thing. It, it has to be a heart thing. And, and, uh, and people, you know, I, I'm like, Brian and I recently, you know, were in jail and we were like just shocked you, when we all. Again, you were ministering in jail. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And you and we, Brian were like pulling we, a caper and ending up in prison. And we find out afterwards, like four people accepted Jesus, two with me, one with him and one with Harmon Vicenza. Like, <laughs> wow. what? Like, and like, there was, I don't believe that any of us got them to say the sinner's prayer. I most certainly didn't. Yeah. Well, and the guy I talked to, like, I just asked him if he wanted to become a believer. There was a conversation, a quite a long conversation a long, before that. Yeah. And, and then he just said yes. And immediately he felt a sense of peace. So I, I led him through a prayer after that. But that, that prayer wasn't when he became a believer. I, I did the prayer almost for his own sake. So he knew later on, okay, there was this definite moment. But the moment was when he said yes. That was the prayer that he said that yeah. saved him. He said yes to Jesus. And and he could feel the shift instantly. And so we we did go through the prayer, but it was like, it was a formality almost. Yeah. I think I grew up thinking that 
you know, the sinner's prayer is kind of like the the secret code for Jesus to come unlock your heart sort of thing. But it's really him just finding his way into an open heart. And that moment when you're in your car and he just encounters you, mm-hmm. I just love the way that that we can step into the kingdom by him just encountering our hearts. Yeah. That's so cool. And And it started with people just praying for you. And then having someone to interpret it. I needed the interpreter yeah. later in the night to like tell me I was a Christian. And then I needed people to like physically move their butts off their coaches and come into my house. So I had demonic activity. I was seeing black oily presences in my n- night seasons. And they were like, that's not normal. And I was like, no, it's just nightmares. And they're like, no, it's demons. And I was like, I don't believe in like demons and <laughs> Satan. Believe me, by the time they were done, I believed in Satan. It took one week. And uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, like they were like, you know, and it taught me about discipleship. One thing that I will say about King's Fellowship, that church knows how to disciple people. I was really well discipled. I'm so, so very grateful. Uh, I'll tell you something. The first year that I got saved, I had had three abortions and I did not want to come to terms with it. I didn't believe it was sinful. And, you know, the Lord was working on me, but I was like, nope. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. I didn't want to deal with it. And I now see that had I not dealt with that, none of like ministry would have been possible because I would be constantly triggered and like just constantly in sin, right? Like, I mean, that burden needed to be lifted and uh, dealt with. And so... I was going to church with these people, Dave and Lynn, and Lynn was involved with Crisis Pregnancy Center. And after about a year of her pleading with me, I mean, no, like she was being really kind. She's a very kind, lovely person. But after about a year and a lot of other people praying, she came and said, listen, I made an appointment for you at Crisis Pregnancy Center. Can you go? You can just go to one. And just do it for me. And and so that's the thing. Like we had a relationship and I said, Okay, and I went, and then I went through a post-abortion Bible study, and then I went through a retreat, two retreats actually, to deal with that particular issue in my life. So there was a lot of modeling, like that was that modeled something really powerful to me. That when people love you, you can speak into their life. You know, they they can speak into your life. So that's something that I, I there's some kids that are in my life that have been in my life for like twelve years a refugee girl that Danica has been helping me with and Michaela, the two uh, shop interns, she disclosed in front of Danica. And I, I mean, I was like, I've known her for 12 years <laughs> and she disclosed in front of Danica, some of her war trauma. And you know, I just, my jaw almost dropped. I mean, it's intense, man. Like, you know, really intense. And uh, that took 12 years of relationship. So, you know, a lot of these things were just naturally modeled to me. So I'm really, really blessed, like really blessed. So you don't feel like you were preached at by any of those friends, but they were really praying and modeling and just opening themselves up. I mean, I'm sure they're sharing. That was a journey. (laughs) I was really angry when I found out the whole church was praying for me initially. (laughs) Like I found out in a Bible study that I got conned into going. I mean, they tried everything, you guys. (laughs) Like I I literally got conned into going to a Bible study and and then then someone didn't know who I was and then stood up and said, you know that girl we're praying for? And I was like, 
I realized they're talking about me. Well, I have a friend in AA, and I think it's not such a bad thing. And I'm just like, I was so mad at him. Oh. We're actually very good friends now. We're all of us. But, you know, like it was just, you know, because they loved me, and yeah. they cared enough to love it. And I see it now. So you have to be kind of like, you know, like careful about the way you coach it because it is offensive. Like Jesus is offensive. He really is. Like he's awesome. He's the kindest man I've ever met, but he's— he, it, the whole idea is it can be offensive if you handle it in a certain way. So it seems like he's used those processes for the way that you handle your ministry too, though. Now, yeah, how it's really loving other people and really modeling it and getting your hands dirty. And yeah, yeah, I, I think about when we had um Graham Becky on the podcast, yeah, and he talked about how, like. I mean, in a certain sense, he stopped doing evangelism and he just started loving people. And I mean, he's doing evangelism, but it's not, it's, it's authentic. It's out of who he is. And that's something I've seen in you, like just over, over the years, it's just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see you as someone who evangelizes you love, but you tell people about Jesus, but it's just who you are. It's, yeah. it's not a switch. What I mean by that, it's not a switch that you turn on or off and now you're going to go evangelize. Yeah. You're just you and you bring Jesus wherever you go. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 3.3 is my one of my guiding scriptures. It was taught to me in the context of ministering to Muslims, you know, that my life is a letter and that people read me. Now, imams do not go into hospital rooms and pray for people. I do. There's certain, like, limits when they take your prayers to the mosque. There's certain limitations. When I say I'm going to pray for you and, I, you know, I actually lay hands on people and they actually feel the presence of God, you know, that is a guiding scripture for me. And, and I used to use it just in the context of Muslims, but I, I realize now that it is pretty much, like, one of the things people read me. And they they that's the thing that kids, like, irritated by me talking to them about abstinence. But I'm walking in abstinence. I'm walking in purity. And so, I'm, you know, I would say to them, like, dude, do you want to know what a struggle is? Be married for like 11 years and then like, you know, become a Christian and then like not have sex. <laughs> That's a struggle. I don't care if you're a 19-year-old guy. You know, like, you know, I really, I know what struggle is, you know. So, it, it, it's just my life. And and the same thing with abortion. I deal with a lot of kids that have had them, have had abortions. It, and I know how, I know that Jesus heals. I know what he did in my heart. I know how he, like, set me free. And people are actually really offended when I say I murdered three children. You know, and that's one of my, like, core, I can sit with a guy in jail, and Brian seen me do it. I can sit with a guy in jail and say, I've committed murder. And they're like, what? <laughs> and I, I eliminated three children from this earth and uh, and their future and their destiny. And, and it just immediately, there's a level playing field. And that's one of my, my core ministry things that has come out over the past few years. There is no us versus them. There's just us. Uh, like, so my life has been totally transformed because I realized like there's no, there's no sin that's, you know, like Brian always says, there's such an abundant amount of grace on my life. Brian Creary, my pastor, he, he's there, there was a great grace playing out in my life so that he can do what it says in Rob, uh, Romans eight thirty eight that he can work all things together for those who are called according to his purpose. Yeah, there's there's no sin he can't his love no. can't overwhelm. Yeah. And so, like I I used to be so mad at God because he gave me the hard cases, 
you know, I just so upset all the time. Like, why am I dealing with murder? Why am I grief counseling? Why, you know, there was a lot of whys. And then I realized like, oh, (laughs) because I committed murder because I, you know, like I was afforded that grace. I was afforded that forgiveness. It all started to make sense. Every once in a while, he'll take you to the mountaintop and he'll show you like, oh, right. You know, and it sort of makes sense. Nothing. A lot of things don't make sense, but. I mean, he's even brought you to speak to other women that have had abortions and yeah. like you got invited on a trip or something. Yeah. And you, you Up north. That was a key trip because at that point I was mostly working with Africans. I was mostly, really, my heart was really rended for Africans, you know, the tribes, tongues, people, and nations. I That scripture really rended my heart. I was like, oh, you know, and then the Lord's like, I'm sending you up north. And I was like, okay. It was really interesting. It was a, the context was like a wellness seminar, but the girl that was running it like knew my story and knew exactly what she was doing. So I went up on a, like a federal government per diem and it was very, very creative what they did. And uh, I did a wellness seminar uh, for like post-abortive women. And then they brought me back in the summer to do it for, to do the same thing for youth. And it was more like preventative in that context, yeah. you know, because not all the kids had done it. But, and I got to like spend like a couple weeks with the Dene people. And uh, it was extremely eye opening spending a couple weeks on a reserve. Um, very like boring. <laughs> Like, there's not a lot to do there, right? You know, like, and uh, just ministry and one ice road, you drive to the end. (laughs) I could go on and on. But anyway, uh, it was, it was really meaningful. And and I, I started seeing, oh, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the peoples, all the nations, you know, when I came back from there, I was just like, you know, a little bit rocked, you know, now I do it in the street. Because that's what's in our street. There's women who've lost their kids to care and, you know, men who are dealing with addiction and um, all of that stuff. You know, like most of the tribes and tongues and people and nations in Manitoba come into Winnipeg for medical services and for, you know, a variety of things. They have to come here. And it just, you know, it, it's really opened my, my mind, like, uh, that I don't have the luxury of just saying, uh, you know, I just deal with refugees. It doesn't work that way anymore. We're going to we're going to keep this conversation going in the next episode. Okay. We want to hear what you're doing on the street. Uh, great conversation. Thank you so much you're for joining welcome. us today. But before we end this episode, it's time for another Wait. What does that mean? So today's word or phrase is forerunner. So, Brian, if you were a new member or new person walking to a house of prayer and you kept hearing this term being used, which you probably would if you are new coming to a house of prayer, is the word forerunner. What would you think that the word forerunner means? Um, well, first of all, some people would, you know, they think of the Toyota forerunner. That's just silly. That's not what the term means at all. It's actually um, referring to a lot of the animals, actually, the animal kingdom. Um, when they run, they run on all fours. And so when we use the term forerunner, that's simply what we're referring to. So uh, a horse is a forerunner. Um, you know, a, uh, 
a cow, if it's moving really fast, it's a forerunner. Cows uh, run? Even an elephant could be a forerunner. Uh, I mean, it's lumbering, but you don't use the word forelumberer. It's a forerunner. And so there you go, forerunner. So would I be a two-runner? Um, well, it depends. Um, I mean, if you're if you're running on your hands as well and kind of, yeah, I mean, you're not as fast. But it's you, strange, though, but that you we too could be a forerunner. We pray for the raising up of forerunners, but really it sounds like we would be praying for the, the laying down of forerunners. If you want to get on all fours and run. Oh, that the two runners would lay down and become forerunners. Right. Jehu, what, what does the word forerunner really mean? <laughs> Just give me a second. <laughs> Priceless. This will be a good meme. <laughs> <laughs> All the different forerunners. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh god. <laughs> I don't know. So the term forerunner, uh, so the term actually is a biblical term. It comes from Luke chapter one, verse 17. If you read in the NASB, it says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so this is speaking, of course, over John the Baptist, speaking over him, his life, his calling, his purpose and destiny. He is a forerunner. He's one who's literally going to run before the coming of Messiah. And so forerunners in our context, we believe Jesus is going to return again. And so we're praying for the raising up of people who would run before the Messiah returns, forerunners running in front of or before. So in the lifestyle of John the Baptist, and that is a model, that's what we're praying for, forerunners. So John the Baptist in the wilderness was not running on all fours, not likely. Although he did wear camel skins. That's true. Or was it goat skin? Both forerunners. Anyway, <laughs> that's the word forerunner. Thank you, Jehu, for your good definition. <laughs> I mean, personally, I like Brian's. It sticks better in my head. It's stuck there now. I, I can't get it out. Did we do a podcast on forerunners? I think so. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you want to hear more about Forerunners, I think we had Stephanie Reimer on with that one. I think so too. Yeah. Awesome. So again, make sure you stick around at the end of this episode. If you want to hear the song of Jaden, he joined our Patreon, so he gets his own song. So listen for that at the end of this episode. This has been another great episode. If you want to visit our website, find out more about us, email us, get a hold of us, become a patron, go to burningrooms.ca. We also have an Instagram page, The Burning Rooms Podcast. Find us on Instagram. Find us on our website. Until next time, my name is Johan. I'm Jehu. I'm Brian. And I'm Gaylene. And this has been The Burning Burning Rooms Podcast. have as part of our patron program the song of Jaden. if you want your own song join and become a patron and enjoy all the great benefits check our show notes for the link I'm gonna tell you all a story about a guy named Jaden. first a little bit about his name it means thankful grateful judge it appears in the Hebrew Bible
He's a good guy, you gotta get to know him 